Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, as we've been making our way through the letter of Second Peter, of course we've been seeing these warnings and descriptions of false teachers that the church was dealing with then and that are still among us today. Peter promised, he gave them a warning that just as there were false prophets among the people of the Old Testament days, so also will there be false teachers among you. And so he is describing with a very serious tone the nature of these false prophets. And we are continuing to look at what he has to say about them today. Our passage this morning will pick up in the middle of verse 10. We'll read together down to verse 16, and we will consider specifically the destructive nature of false teachers. Peter says, chapter 2, beginning in the middle of verse 10, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about false teachers, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, the greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, as your servant Peter wrote these words, he was gravely concerned about the well-being and the godliness of your people, gravely concerned about the gospel and the word of God and your name being slandered, misrepresented, of you being treated irreverently, of the Word of God being turned into a license for sin. And as he wrote these words, 
to your people at the time and to us. He wrote them that they might be on guard against those who would distort the way of truth. I pray for us, Lord. I pray that we would recognize the gravity of these matters, that we ourselves would not treat your word as a light thing, that we would not have tolerance for sin in our own lives, and that we would not consider the blasphemy and distortion of your word as something that can simply be overlooked, but that we would be bold in our own witnesses, that we would proclaim the whole counsel of God, both to those who do not know you and those who profess to know you and those who genuinely know you. So Lord, I pray for our time this morning that as we hear from your word, you would strengthen and prepare our hearts for the inevitable and necessary spiritual battle that we have to fight. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our text this morning expands on some of the ideas that we came across in the first part of chapter 2. Just by reading it, you can tell it has a very serious tone. Peter here is not simply going on some angry rant. He has not lost his cool and flown into an uncontrolled rage. I think it's worth remembering that Peter was not only an apostle, but he was a pastor. He shepherded the flock of God. And part of shepherding, of course, involves feeding the sheep, teaching them the Word of God, reminding them of those glorious truths of the Word, and exhorting them to pursue godliness. But shepherding sheep also means that you have to protect them. It is your role to be a watchman. The sheep are prey, and predators seek to devour them. They are stalked by wolves, lions, and the shepherd, when he sees a wolf, must warn the sheep of the looming danger. He must call them away and protect them. That's what Peter's doing here. He knows that these Christians that he's addressing have wolves among them. Wolves bearing the name of Christ. Feasting with them. And it would be a dereliction of duty if he said to the sheep, these wolves who are among you, make sure that you just be nice to them. Make sure that you are showing them the love of Christ. Be nice. Speak tenderly to them. Pet them on the head like tamed wolves and be gentle. 
that'd be terrible. Shepherding. That would not be recognizing the danger of the situation. This, of course, would give the impression that these wolves just need a little bit of love in their life. And then they can change. Perhaps these wolves, they, they have a troubled background. It's turned them into carnivores. Perhaps when they're in a pack and are hungry and they see you and are snarling at you and stalking you as drool is falling from their mouths, you should walk in the middle of the pack and say, I come in peace. Imagine a lamb walking into that situation and saying, I just want to be friendly today. It would be a lamb led to slaughter. It would be absurd. And it would be absurd for Peter to be giving this sort of direction, guidance to the people of God. And yet, because of so many unbalanced views of Christ, unbalanced views and understandings of the gospel, this is what many people believe we should do when confronting false teachers and false teaching. We cannot break the 11th commandment. Ever. Some of you know what the 11th commandment is. Maybe some of you, you don't. It's not a biblical commandment. Thou shalt be nice. At all times, thou shalt be nice. Many Christians, in fact, hold to this commandment stronger than any other. And yet, I wonder if the strong words of Peter that we read here would fulfill that commandment in the minds of many. Do these words sound like nice words? Those about whom it is directed, do you think if you had a conversation with them that they would say, that Peter, he's such a nice man they would probably be greatly offended and angered by those words. But Peter is not concerned about violating the commandment of being nice in all situations. He's concerned about the flock of God. And he's concerned about the glory of God and the way of truth being blasphemed by false teachers. And so what he does is that he speaks very plainly about their nature, about what's in them, about what they're doing, about what drives their hearts and their desires, about the corruption that is within them, and he speaks very plainly about their end. What will come of them? Those who go the way of Balaam. That's what we must do. We must think clearly and biblically and speak plainly and pointedly when teachers in the name of Christ are leading people to damnation. Jesus has incredibly strong words for those who cause others to fall into sin. They need a millstone tied around their neck and cast into the bottom of the ocean. 
That's what Peter's doing here. There are wolves among the sheep, and you must understand what they are. So this morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at this destructive nature of false teachers. What is it that they do that is so destructive? And what do they do that merits their own destruction? Well, first of all, they speak blasphemous words. They speak blasphemous words, which means they slander, they demean, or they speak irreverently, often about heavenly and spiritual matters. They have no respect. They have no fear of authorities that are much, much greater than they. Peter refers to this characteristic when he says in the middle of verse 10 that they despise authority or to capture the word play that is there as a play on words with the the, the word of of, of the Lord, the, the term the Lord. So they despise lordship. Then he explains further at the end of verse 10. Bold and willful, audacious, arrogant, prideful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. These first two terms describe someone who is consumed by pride. They're arrogant. They are unable to listen to reason with others. They have exalted themselves in their own minds, fearing nothing and believing that no harm will ever come to them. And this wicked pride allows them to speak about heavenly creatures as if they have first-hand knowledge of them and to speak of them in denigrating ways. That's what Peter means when he's referring here to the glorious ones. There's some debate as to whether or not the glorious ones refers to fallen angels or just angels in general. And much of the debate centers around the exact relationship between 2 Peter and Jude and whether or not they're addressing the same exact false teachers. I'm of the mind, though, that the glorious ones here refers to angels more broadly, and that in verse 11, the angels not pronouncing a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord refers to angels refraining from speaking maliciously about men even though they are much more powerful and stronger. However, the exact reference is understood. The point is this. These false teachers are speaking about heavenly realities with no respect at all. They have no reverence. And they are so full of pride that they do not even tremble as they do so. They have no fear in them at all about the consequences of their blasphemous speech. Throughout Scripture, in every single occasion, someone is confronted by an angel, in his glory, or is in the presence of God Almighty, they tremble, they fear, whether they are believers or not, they tremble in the presence 
of heavenly glories. They fall on their faces in abject terror. Even Balaam, whom we read about earlier, of whom Peter mentions here in this very passage, when he is confronted by an angel of the Lord standing on the road with a sword unsheathed, ready to kill him, he falls on the ground in terror. And yet, these men have no fear at all. They speak blasphemous words with boastful hearts. Now, you hear this kind of blasphemous nonsense among word of faith preachers all the time. Thinking of your Kenneth Copelands and your Creflo Dollars. They will boldly command God himself to give them what they want. As if they're the creator and he submits to them. But this kind of thing does not just happen out there in the world, out there on TV. It happens here in our own backyard. I want to quote for you the words of a local preacher here in town. These are words that were said to hundreds if not thousands of people. The preacher said this as the opening words of his message. I want to bring you a true testimony. That's important. There's a claim to truth. I want to bring you a true testimony. I stand before you today because Jesus Christ let me live, and that's the only reason I'm here. Now, I've got good news. Where we're going is better than where we are. We've got some things to do before we get there. And this is where it really starts getting interesting. He said, I was in the presence of the Lord. I've been in the presence of the Lord before. But at this time, I was in the presence of the Lord and I wasn't sure what was going to go down. Now, we might think, well, maybe he, he just means he was in prayer. He was reading his Bible, he was communing with the Lord, and maybe there's just not a lot of precision in the language. But as he continued, it was very clear that that was not the case. He had been, on multiple occasions, mind you, face to face with the Lord. Indeed, in heaven itself, in the presence of God, in that sense. For he goes on. And in that presence, I said, Lord, you know the kids are grown up. They're good. They're married. My wife, she's a pretty woman. She'll find another man. I'm cool to stay here with you. That's what I told the Lord. I said, I'm good right here. Oh, let me tell you, you are better than good in the presence of the Lord. Now, just imagine being in the presence of the majesty on high. And the first words you can think of to say is about how good-looking your wife is? 
But he continues. But even at that moment in the presence, guess what I knew? I could feel it in my bones. And Jesus said, divine revelation, well, Stephen, he never calls me Pastor Steve. I'm not talking about Hasong either. He never calls me Pastor Steve because there's no titles in heaven. At which point, Steve goes on to describe this glorious insight of a titleless heaven. But then he continues. He explained that he's here today because he loves the people who are there and Jesus loves them. And then he continued with his heavenly encounter. So I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, what are we going to do? Because I want to do whatever you want to do, because I figured out that's the best way. And he said, well, Stephen, now he talks to Southern people like Southerners. And he said, well, Stephen, don't you reckon we ought to go back and finish that fight? And I said, Lord, I reckon we ought to do whatever you need to do. Then he explained how Jesus would have talked to him had he been from the north, right? He would have had a different accent at that point. And then came the grand revelation. This was the word from on high that all of the people who were gathered together needed to hear. This was what the Lord needed to speak to his people. And I want you all to know tonight that in him, everything's going to be all right. The famous words of Bob Marley. I want you to listen for a moment. This man came to the throne room of God, as is the claim. He came to the place where cherubim cover their faces as they cry out in worship and praise day and night of the majesty on high. He came to the one whom John describes is like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, whose hairs of his head are white like wool and snow, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet as burnished bronze refined in a furnace, whose voice is like the roar of many waters, who holds seven stars in his hand, from whose mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and whose face is like the sun shining in full strength. He came into the presence of this one and spoke of the physical attributes of his wife. That's blasphemy. In every sense of the word, that is irreverent, ungodly speech. And that's what false teachers do. They speak of the glory of God as if it's nothing. This coming from the largest Southern Baptist church in Kentucky. That's the kind of stuff we propagate in the name of Jesus. These are not ancient problems. These are very present problems. 
And this is what false teachers do. They have no reverence, and they utter all kinds of blasphemy in the name of Jesus. But additionally, false teachers may also openly flaunt their self-indulgence. False teachers may also openly flaunt their self-indulgence. I want you to notice with me again what Peter says in the middle of verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Or they consider reveling in the daytime, being self-indulgent, being extravagant. They consider all of this to be pleasurable. They have no shame. They don't try and hide their worldliness. They love to gratify the desires of the flesh, whether that be sexually or with a hunger for riches or any luxuries that the world has to offer. These are their blessings. Worldly gain is a sign of God's favor over them. Worldly success means that God is in all their work. So they have no need to hide it. Prosperity is their gospel and their belly is their God. And as long as they are proclaiming that distortion of the way of truth, those who follow them will continue to see no problems at all with it because that's the word they've accepted. Third, they corrupt what is sacred. They corrupt what is sacred. All throughout this letter, Peter uses a variety of word plays to make his various points. Sometimes they can be hard to bring out in English, but you can see at the end of verse 12 how the, the ESV is trying to capture a word play here when it says of false teachers that they will be destroyed in their destruction. There's similar sounding words, and this is the case all throughout the passage. There's also two related words that are stated in verse 13, where there's another word play that Peter uses to speak of how these people corrupt all that is sacred. In verse 13, at the end, we read this, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions, our key word, while they feast with you. Now, the feast that he's referring to here is what early Christians called the love feast. And these were really just, they were communal meals where as the church gathered together for its regular worship, one of the things that they would do is share a meal together. And this was often the context around which the Lord's Supper would be taken a full reenactment of the Lord's Supper. And these were called love feasts. But the name love feast comes from a word you've probably heard before. One of the more common words of, for love in the New Testament is agape. You've probably heard that a time or two. And the feasts were called the agapis. It's a plural. But here, Peter uses a very similar sounding word, apatis, which has the idea of deceitful pleasures. And the point that he's making is that what's supposed to be a love feast, the agape feast, has been turned into a Deception feast, a pleasure feast, a lying feast. 
The communal gathering of the church had become the time and place in which their wickedness was on full display. For false teachers, there is nothing sacred about the church. There's nothing sacred about the worship of God or the ordinances or the Word of God. It's all simply a stage on which their perverse ideas and blasphemous practices are acted out. And this perversion still continues. We have churches that build water slides that flow into water tanks for baptisms so that you can be baptized by immersion through water slides. Now, if you have a church of a thousand people and you say, who wants to be baptized? With an appealing water slide at hand, how many kids do you think are going to want to slide down that thing? It's manipulation. And it's a taking of something that is sacred and trivializing it. We have churches that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to build literally WWE wrestling rings so that a wrestling match can be acted out before the topical message on wrestling and the gospel is delivered. Are you like Jacob who wrestled with God? Come this Sunday and we'll act it out. There's nothing sacred to these men. Nothing is serious. Everything can be distorted and perverted as long as we say it's reaching people for Jesus. Beyond just the unbiblical sacrilege that saturates much of evangelicalism, what sort of Jesus are we winning people to? With these things. When you are faced with a trial of either losing your livelihood or losing your head or being faithful to Christ, is that the kind of Christ that's going to keep you faithful? Could we go to a war-torn country like Sudan or a tyrannical country like China where following Christ may mean being imprisoned or death and build water slides for baptisms and tell people everything's going to be all right? Can we make that promise? I don't think so. That's another Christ. When nothing is sacred and nothing is serious, nothing matters. It's all a joke. And then we wonder why when people start seriously thinking about the world, about the Bible, about God, about His existence? Why, when they are confronted with very serious ideologies and philosophies and religions from the world, they quickly turn away? Because we've presented them a Jesus that doesn't exist. And we've told them that by following this Jesus that doesn't exist through water slide baptism, they'll be saved forever. Peter was unwilling to even acknowledge the love feast 
as a love feast anymore. Particularly with respect to these participants, the false teachers. The feast had become something for them that was altogether different. It's similar to when the Apostle Paul rebuked the whole Corinthian church for their own perversion of the Lord's Supper. He said in chapter 11, verse 20 to 21, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You may be doing the things, but you're not eating the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. There's no regard for the body at all. And there's reveling and drunkenness. It's a perversion. The stuff is there, but the meaning the stuff is communicating is false. So what you're eating is not the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is not even worthy to be called the Lord's Supper. And this is what false teachers do. This is how they destroy the church. This is how they destroy the word of God. They corrupt everything that is sacred, all while using the same Christian language. Fourth, they are filled with lust. They're filled with lust. In these last few points, Peter's going to speak about what's in their nature, what's in their hearts. And he says in verse 14 that one of the characteristics of their nature is lustfulness. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They can't get enough of it. Now, you must remember that not every false teacher is going to be an adulterer. That they don't all share the exact same characteristics. But this was certainly the case with the ones that Peter was addressing. And it's certainly still the case for many false teachers today. They are sexually perverted. When they look at another person, they do not see a person. They see an opportunity to satisfy their cravings. They're the kind of people you would not want to leave your children alone with for a second. They have appetites that cannot be satisfied. That's really the nature of being enslaved to sin, which is what they are. They are in bondage to sin. One sin is never enough. It's like someone who abuses drugs, right? They, they use a drug one time and they can't get enough of it. They keep on going back for more and more. And they will manipulate others to attempt to satisfy that craving. They will deceive. They will steal. They will even murder. There's no concern for others. There's only a concern to have the lusts of the flesh satisfied. And these false teachers are doing this very thing. They use their manipulative skills to get from others what they want. Peter says they entice unsteady souls. This is also noteworthy. False teachers don't go after those who are strong in faith. They go after the weak. Unsteady souls. The image is of a man who is standing without any balance at all. You could picture a toddler just learning how to walk they cannot stand up for more than a moment. And that's the nature of the people they go after. 
These are people who have no real footing. Their feet are not planted firmly on a strong foundation. These are the kind of people who are largely ignorant of the Word of God. They may have vague notions of the Gospel of Christ. They'll give a loud amen when you say, Jesus loves you and came to save you. Amen! That's what I believe. But beyond that, they're largely ignorant of Scripture. And thus their faith isn't rooted in much else besides a lot of common Christian cliches that they hear. These are the kind of people who themselves are constantly getting entangled in sin and who are never able to really have any victory over it. These are unsteady souls. These are the primary targets of false teachers. The ones that are most easy to manipulate. Use a Christian sounding statement here, another one there. Put a smile on your face, promise great things, promise freedom. And you have them hooked. So there's a warning here for us, friends, not to be weak and unsteady in faith, but to give all our hearts, our souls, our minds to the Lord, lest we be enticed by the wolves. Fifth, Peter says they're full of greed. In fact, he says their hearts are trained in greed. This, of course, implies that they have not accidentally stumbled into greediness. This isn't a character trait that they inherited or a sin that they've been fighting against. No, what's going on within them is practice, discipline, repetition. They feed their greed. They justify it. They satisfy it. Peter says that they are like Balaam. The end of verse 15 says of Balaam that he loved gain. He loved the wages that came from wrongdoing. When you read the story of Balaam in Numbers 22 and, and, and the additional chapters, of course what you find is that Balaam, who was a false prophet, practiced divination, and was very well known. Balak, the king of Moab, wants to curse Israel, and he knows where to go. Because Balaam has earned a repetition. He's been doing, reputation, he's been doing this for a while. If you want something to happen to your enemies, if you want the gods to act on your behalf and curse your enemies, you go to him. But when you go to him, you better not go empty-handed. You have to bring a fee. When Balak wanted Israel cursed, we read in Numbers 22, verse 7, that he sent some of his elders to Balaam with a divination fee. And even though Balaam knew that it was not the Lord's will to curse the people of Israel, he was so blinded by a love for money. He was so trained in his greed that he was going to do whatever he could to manipulate the will of the Lord and to get his fee. False teachers do not care about what is right. There's not a moral compass that is shaped or molded or even constrained by the Word of God. They are driven by hearts that are fundamentally bent towards evil. And they will say whatever they need to, even using the name of Jesus, for gain. That could be material gain. It could be any gain. It could be recognition 
to be status, to be influence. They're greedy for everything. And all of this corruption, all of this sin, this irreverence is fundamentally due to the fact that they are apostates in every sense of the word, which is our our sixth point. They are apostates. They have departed from the faith. Peter says in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've left the faith. They've abandoned it. Now, that does not mean that they vocally oppose Jesus and the gospel outright. There are many forms of apostasy. There is an atheistic apostasy, of course, where you just reject the existence of God, reject Christ, reject the Word altogether. All of it is untrue, and that's what you're proclaiming. But there can also be a moral apostasy where the way of truth is abandoned. The right way is left for another way. And when the Bible, of course, all throughout speaks of a way, it is referring to a way of life, a certain kind of living, godliness. It is this that is abandoned by the false teachers. The apostate may still confess certain truths about Christ that are orthodox. They may affirm everything. A doctrinal heretic is a heretic because they deny the fundamental truths of Christianity. They deny the Word of God. They've created a a whole new faith altogether. But you can have someone who confesses and proclaims all of the truths of God's Word accurately, but they are moral apostates. You can certainly even have men who are Reformed preachers stating biblical truths week in and week out, but themselves are lost. And if they themselves have have abandoned the obedience of faith, and if their lives are consumed in sin, whether secret or open, they can be apostates. The ministry may be nothing more in heart than a means of gain, and they will continue to say what they need to say to get that gain. Now, my point is not that we need to question the sincerity of everyone's faith. No. It's simply to say that what is at root of all moral corruption of false teachers and the multitude of ways that that corruption can be manifest is apostasy. A forsaking of Christ. When someone forsakes the right way, it is inevitable that the bad fruit of moral decay and ungodliness will follow. Now, I want to close with two brief points of application. One is the reminder that false teachers, no matter how deceptive, they may be, and no matter how great their followings may be, will receive the judgment they deserve for taking advantage of others and for leading many to hell. They will suffer destruction for their destructive ways. Peter says at the end of verse 12, they will be destroyed in their destruction suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. There's another word play here, but Peter is basically saying that those who defrauded many will be defrauded themselves. 
for all the gain they were so confident in having will be stripped from them. The principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth will be meted out upon them because God will sanctify his name. If they have perverted it, he will uphold it, and he will uphold it in their judgment. The second point is this. The second point is to give your own life to the word of God and to obeying it with all your strength. This is to guard you from becoming or being one of the unsteady, easily manipulated souls. I'm reminded of that phrase that Peter uses, unsteady. It's been like burned into my mind this week because it's so dangerous. You are on unsteady footing. Out of all of these descriptions that we find here, this one troubles me most because it's so avoidable and yet so common. Many Christians, genuine Christians, get swept up into so many fads and silliness and destructive errors because their Bibles are left on their shelves at home, never to be touched. They cut themselves off from the people of God, the people that God has given them to stir them up to love, to faithfulness, to good works. They absent themselves from the body. They neglect the most basic spiritual disciplines and thereby make themselves easy targets for wolves and for the temptations of the flesh. When Israel was in the wilderness where they were about to go into the land of Canaan, God explained through Moses the reason why he let them hunger and he fed them with manna in the wilderness. He explained the reason why he brought all of these various trials upon them and he says that it was to humble them and to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but he lives on every word which comes from the mouth of God. He lives. He lives. That's how you live. There is an eternal death that is on the horizon. How do we escape it? How do we live? We hang on to the word of God, that very word which points us to the Savior. That's our man. That's our food that sustains us even through the most dark trials. We leave that aside and we are placing ourselves in the position of lambs being surrounded by wolves. So friends, my exhortation to you, if you have been out of the word, if you've been neglectful of it, don't just beat yourself up and then do nothing about it. That's what we can tend to do, right? We feel some level of remorse. I've been terrible at this. And then we do nothing. That's not repentance. Repentance is I have sinned. I've been neglectful. Now I will sin no longer. I'm going to turn. I'm going to be in his word. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to devour it. I'm going to obey it. He promises that if we, if we do this, if we trust in the Lord and we walk in faithfulness, if we confirm our calling and election, he will keep us till the end. 
and we will bring safe we will be brought safely through to the promised land let's go to the lord in prayer Father, we are reminded again and again in your word about the spiritual wars that we are in. There are wars with the old man and the the flesh that we have to fight. There are battles internally, spiritually, sins that we have to put to death in our own lives, and there are battles that rage before us out in the world there are even battles of which we are ignorant of in the heavenlies but you have given us the way the truth you have given us your word that guards us on the one hand from error and provokes us all the more on the other to godliness. And so, Father, I pray that we would take up your word and the sword of the Spirit and wage the good war, that you would keep us, that we would walk faithfully, we would obey your word, and that you would make us a people more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.